The Scuttlebutt is proud to welcome Millerstown Pick Apart, a self-service salvage yard where you can get parts you need for your car, truck, or van at very attractive prices because you do the work. Bring your own wrenches, hammers, screwdrivers, sockets, jacks, drills, or whatever you need, except for torches, to wrestle out the parts you need for the vehicles in the yard. Millerstown Pick Apart was created 17 years ago to provide reasonably priced solutions for auto parts needs. Millerstown is the perfect fit for those seeking discount auto parts to repair their own vehicles. Millerstown has a huge inventory of cars, which they purchase from individuals, towing companies, and auctions, and from its sister auto salvage recycling operation. For hours, directions, inventory, parts availability, and pricing, you can go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D, pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. That's pickapartyard.com, or call 724-224-4777. What I recognize is that inner voice, that, that person saying, you'll never be able to do that, the only person saying that, was the guy looking at me in the mirror. Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. My name is Sean Hall, the Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Uh, we are going to be doing an interesting episode here today with Zach Knight, uh, who you're in Atlanta, Georgia. Is that right, Zach? That's it. Hot Atlanta down here. Hot Atlanta down there. It's pretty much hot Pittsburgh up here as well. Uh, <laughs> For our audience, if you would uh, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube and leave us a comment or shoot me an email at Sean, that's S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to get into uh, Zach's story and a lot of ideas of leadership, entrepreneurial uh, ventures that a lot of veterans are into. Um, Zach's podcast, uh, Be a Tactical Leader. Um, so we got a lot to talk with Zach about here and uh, we're going to dive right in, but I'm going to hand it over and Zach, if you'd like to introduce yourself, thank you so much for joining us on the Scuttlebutt. Yeah, man, Sean, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for having me, man. It's always a pleasure not only to dive into my own story, because as you know, as a podcaster, right, you never really get to talk about yourself. So it's fun to kind of flip the script a little bit and uh, go, go freewheeling on stuff. And uh, I apologize to the audience ahead of time. Sean didn't know what he was getting into by asking me on this show. So we're going to have a lot of fun today. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, you screwed up, Sean. Uh, <laughs> well, nah. that's a normal occurrence in my everyday <laughs> life. So par for the course. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, no, nah, man. It, honestly, it, it's kind of a bland story. You know, I started here. I was born and raised here in Atlanta. I was actually a homeschooled kid way back in the day, middle school and high school, did all my um, I have a bachelor and an MBA. All of that was virtual and all distance learning. So I, I love the COVID environment because I'm used to learning that way. So it's actually been pretty nice. Mm -hmm. But um, I started the, the professional journey as a police officer here in Metro Atlanta. Um, did a little bit of uh, SWAT stuff for a few years, moved from that into the military, infantry. Uh, I got a called a deployment to Afghanistan. Um, right before the deployment is actually when I started my first business and I scaled past that first one. Now I own six different businesses that um, as I'm transitioning out of the military, now I'm getting medically discharged due to some nerve damage. Um, I'm moving back into that entrepreneur, CEO mindset, trying to get back into uh, living the normal life, as you will, as a civilian and uh, trying to enjoy having facial hair again and not being out of wreck <laughs> by shaving my head, you know? Yeah. Still wake up at 4 a.m. The army screwed me there. I'm still waking up nice and early, but mm -hmm. having facial hair is really a, a good benefit of being out at least, as you recognize. <laughs> I, I do enjoy the little, I, I mean, I don't really grow a nice big beard like yourself. Mine kind of comes in and splotches and every once in a while, I'll just let it kind of get scruffy, <laughs> but uh, you know, just to protect my, my, my daughter's skin a little, I, I, I like go a little bit smaller smooth, smoother than I am today. <laughs> um, but I mean, let's, let's jump back into history a bit. You know, you're, you're born and raised there in Atlanta. Um, your dad, he was in the Navy Yep. prior to you coming along. Yeah. I mean, he was in Vietnam. So many years before I was around, it's actually my stepdad, my only dad okay. I've ever known. Um, my mom remarried when I was about four. So he's, he's dad by all means. And um, really the, the man I turned to, I know you'd mentioned leadership, but he's the one that taught me to be a man. I mean, he's old school. Mm -hmm. He still hasn't sat down a day in his life. Um, man, I, I don't know how people look at what I do and they're like, man, you're busy. I'm like, nah, I'm still not as busy as pops is. Cause he's like that generation's a different breed, man. But he was, mm -hmm. 
Navy in Vietnam. I, I was joking with you earlier. He never learned how to swim. And the joke is like the, in the Navy, the, the, the point is to stay on the boat and never get off the boat, but you know, he can't swim. So I don't know what they taught in the military way back when, but swimming was not one of those things. Apparently. No ocean is cold. Ocean is deep. Get, <laughs> stay on that boat. Make sure, <laughs> make sure you keep your feet dry. That's, the idea. That's fine. That's fine. So, um, what led you, you know, out of high school, what led you to, to join the police force? You know, I would love to say there was like this vision attached to, you know, this, this grand wise idea of giving back. And there is a part of that. Like, I think a, a lot of police officers have that mindset. They want to give back. They want to be part of community. You know, I, I literally in the, the place, same place I grew up playing T-balls where I ended up being a police officer. But mm. the logical side of my brain was like, what do I want to do with my life? Well, it wasn't sit behind a desk. It wasn't be stuck in one spot. And, you know, it was like, man, why not be a cop where I can drive around in my office? I can give back to my community. I can build that leadership aspect. Never really recognized it as that at the beginning, but I wanted to be busy. I wanted to go do stuff. I didn't want to be stuck in one spot, even though like these days I'm stuck behind a desk and my knees thank me for it now. But, you know, back then it was like, I just want to go do something that is, making a little bit of an impact in the world. And it turned into being a police officer up in uh, Metro Atlanta. So how do you go in the same community from being like, you know, Zachy down the street to like, you now <laughs> running a, a beat and like, and like, how does that change your perception of the community? And how does the community then perceive you whenever you become a, a police officer? You know, I started back in 2009 and did it until um, right at the beginning of 2017. So it's, and that's an interesting question that somebody's not asked me before, because it, you, there is that change, right? There's that shift where you lose a lot of friends. People don't want to be friends with the cop anymore, right? You're not invited to the parties as you're, because I started at 21. So it's like, you're not invited to the cool shit anymore, because guess what? You're, you're the party pooper all of a sudden. Um, yeah. So it, it's interesting because the first few years were amazing. Uh, it was everything I wanted it to be. Um, I really you know, the last name being Knight, uh, any fight I've ever gotten into in like high school moving forward, I've really taken that as like defending others as being like that really huge call in my calling in my life where I hate bullies. I'm the guy that beats up the bully. And I, I took that into policing. But what, what turned really unfortunate is I was on the SWAT team. Um, we ended up getting in an engagement and killing a guy about a month after Ferguson happened and the BLM movement started. And it, it turned that rhetoric towards policing turned where guys I grew up playing t-ball with all of a sudden were spitting on me because I'm the white cop. And that's like the image that it was. And it, honestly, it was like heartbreaking because I'm like, I grew up with you. You know, I'm not that guy. Yeah. Um, and it, it really, that's what in the end drove me out of that industry. It's like, I'm not making the impact I wish I could make where her hands are tied. We're the ones wearing the handcuffs at this point because we can't even do our job without worrying about liability. Mm -hmm. And I ended up pushing out of that world. I just, I just could not maintain that mentality about, all right, I'm actually making a difference when it was so obvious that, you know, in law enforcement, you stop making a difference in that 2016, 2017 realm. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I hadn't even really thought about that uh, and how that must have changed a lot of uh, policemen and police women's lives and careers um, shifted everybody uh, as the perception uh, sort of shifted. Um, before that, before that happened, um, you know, what, what did you like about being in the in the police force and then and then being in SWAT? You know, the, the police side of things was amazing. I learned a ton of things. Um, I really did have those moments where I gave back. I ended up doing a lot of uh, narcotics work, um, some undercover type stuff where I was in that realm. I read a book many, many years ago called The Natashas, and it was all about human trafficking. And it talked about like the number one consumer for human trafficking across the world is the United States. And beyond that, you, the United States military. And it really kind of got me in that realm of, you know, wanting to combat human trafficking. Again, bullies. I didn't like bullies. So I wanted mm -hmm. to go in that route and it started with narcotics trafficking. So I got really heavy into narcotics and then um, ended up leaving the industry before I ever really dove into the human trafficking aspect. But Atlanta is the number one hub in the world for human trafficking. So it's like a, a because Hartsfield here is like the number one airport, busiest airport in the world. So, so many people come through. It's heartbreaking to really see the statistics. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of passion pieces that came out of that. One of my organizations is a domestic violence awareness nonprofit. 
that came out of a lot of the things I saw there where our primary program is teaching women self-defense. And it's a very proactive approach. A lot of resources are, okay, you've been assaulted or you've, you've been the victim of domestic violence. Here's what you can do now. We really focus on here's how you don't get victimized. Here's how you don't fall prey to a bully. Here's how you defend yourself. And so a lot of things came out of law enforcement. Now, looking back, I, I had a lot of great lessons um, some of them very difficult to learn, but can you, overall, can you examine any one, any one of those, any of the difficult ones to learn? You know, a lot of that was really that impact piece, right? Like you go into it thinking, I'm going to make a difference and I'm going to change lives. I'm going to help people. And, you know, when a big piece of that, and again, I, I look at the businesses I've started have really come directly from that, where my security firm, um, started with, what ended up being my why, uh, my why behind a lot of what I do, I ended up going to a call as an audible alarm, a routine call. I mean, 97% of audible alarms are, are false alarms, right? The, mm -hmm. the wind set off the alarm or a storm set off the alarm, whatever it may be. But I went to this one in particular, it was about halfway through my career. So 2013, 2014. And I show up, the back door's kicked in, it's a burglary, my partner gets there, we clear the house, it looks like a scene from a movie, everything's tossed, ransacked, um, we, as a police officer, what you have to realize is um, serve and protect, protect and serve, like that is the catchphrase overall, but realistically, it's respond and report, you show up after a crime's already been committed, and you write a report about it, and the sad part about that is, yes, that's your job, but when you do do something like a burglary you have to call in the homeowners and you have to talk to the homeowners hey what's taken what's missing you have to inventory all these things so they've already been victimized by something that they weren't around but they they have that feeling of being victimized and being violated because somebody's in their space right yeah yeah and as i'm doing this inventory it's a young couple they had just gotten married not too long back moved into with each other as we're doing this inventory, the laptop's gone, the TV's gone, all that silly stuff that is replaceable. And then all of a sudden, the, the young woman, she like sprints off to the, the bedroom, the master bedroom. We go back, I'm like, oh shit, this can't be good, right? So I follow her back, then her jewelry box is tipped over and she starts like trifling through all this stuff and she can't find this one item. It's an heirloom ring from her grandmother that passed two weeks before, uh, irreplaceable. It's this yeah. one thing that like, we, we can't track it. There's no serial number, you just can't find it. And she looks up at me, she's bawling at this point. She looks up at me, she's like, how do we stop this from ever happening to us again? How do we protect our family, our friends from ever having to feel this way? And the sad part is, as a police officer, you cannot answer that question. If you say, hey, this alarm, this lock, this is what's going to keep you safe. And then that fails. We're well, opening yourself, the city, the police department open to a lawsuit. Right. And in this litigation heavy society, that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And so the police department's training, you don't give those recommendations. So that was like a huge lesson I had to learn is like, you have to hold your tongue because you don't, you want to help, but you can't help, but you really want to help. Yeah. So after a couple of years, and this is that first business I started, I didn't want to go back into law enforcement. I was going through basic training, OCS, IBOLIC, uh, infantry school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go back into law enforcement and all that was done because I was a National Guard guy. So I wasn't going to go active duty. And I was like, what am I going to do? I'm like, you know what, that that one thing stuck in my head for so long. I'm like, what do I do about that? How do I solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And what it turned into was a security firm that literally what we do is risk assessment, risk analysis. How do we go in and we focus on this is what's going to keep you safe. If a police station, if a police department can't do this because of liability, here's how we bridge the gap to that. Here's how you keep yourself safe. So like that was one of the hardest realizations, but just like any entrepreneur, right? You find a problem, you find something that you can solve and you go and solve it. So it was a really hard lesson to realize like, man, I'm not really making the impact of not helping people the way I want to help them. Yeah. But if you have the right mindset, you're going to shift that into, okay, here's a solution and here's what I'm going to do moving forward. Incredible. Um, how is it, uh, is there a transition from like being, a, a, I don't know, you could call it a beat cop or a regular cop to a SWAT cop? Like what's that training like? 
You know, for my agency that I was at, it was not a full-time SWAT team. Mm -hmm. So we were all, you know, trained. There, there was training that happened several times a month, but you still worked the beat or you still did whatever other, we had like detectives, we had all those other people that were on the team. Mm -hmm. That training was, I mean, it was similar to like a shortened basic training. You know, you go do all your PT stuff. You, you do a lot of shooting, a lot of target shooting, because you have to make those in the moment decisions. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of mindset training, a lot of uh, pistol training, firearms training, um, but realistically, it's kind of like the Call of Duty stuff. You know, you see the throw a flashbang in or or the CS gas, you, you gas a place and you go in and take them out. I mean, it was literally that life here in Atlanta where we would we did a lot of drug warrants, uh, drug related things, prostitution stings, which ended up being human trafficking stuff. We, mm -hmm. we did a lot of those with the FBI that were just that's where the impact you started seeing it, right? When you go in and you rescue these girls out of this human trafficking, that was where I was like, man, this is great. Cause this is what we should be doing in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, well, how does, how did leadership change between that as well? Like, do you, do you have different leaders uh, as you become a SWAT cop? Uh, and were there any that really stood out to you? You know, it's kind of like a direct report just okay. like in the military, right? There are mm -hmm. sergeants, there are lieutenants, there's that person you go to. So I did have several different people going across. Um, I, I don't think it was necessarily that that shifted the most because unfortunately in law enforcement, there's a level of like institutionalism where you have this culture that's been set by the guy that was a sergeant 20 years ago that's now the captain, the deputy chief, whatever it may be. And there's this culture within and looking back at it now and my journey currently, my leadership has shifted to like self-mastery. How do you get your mind right? How do you get yourself right so that you can lead others in the most optimal way? Mm -hmm. And what I didn't recognize back then is that if you fall into this system, if there's a level of corruption there, which there's a, there, a lot of law enforcement agencies, like the culture within the building is just not a good one, right? That there are things that happen that like, we're better than this. We should be better than this. And for me, the leadership shift there was I ended up going through um, the Del Carnegie Institute here in Atlanta. I went through the Del Carnegie training. It was a great program. I ended up going back and teaching Del Carnegie and all his lessons. And the biggest shift there was like, in my mind was, I don't want to be a part of a, a inner culture that isn't representing the way we should be representing. We're not making the impact we should be making because we're not right within ourselves. And the unfortunate piece is, you know, the, it goes back to, well, we've been doing it this way forever, right? This has always worked. Don't fix what's not broken. And they never recognize, hey, this is actually what's broken. And over the last five years or so that I've been out, that shift is, has happened. I still have a lot of contacts in that world. That security firm that I started only employs off-duty police officers and veterans. So it's one of those, like that shift I have seen, but I just didn't see that possible when I was in because of where the culture was in society. So the public perception starts to shift. Um, you want to get out. How difficult is it to get out of that world? Um, honestly, it's not difficult at all. I guess it depends <laughs> on, um, probably easier than the military, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, I mean and, and to, to really put it in perspective, a lot of people go military into law enforcement because they yeah. want that bond. They want that culture. They want that brotherhood or sisterhood. Let's not exclude. Um, I did it backwards where my two week notice literally went into basic training. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't really lose that. So for me, it was an easy shift, it was an easy transition where I went from something small to something much bigger in the military, mm -hmm. still had the uniform, still had the brotherhood. The harder transition is like right now getting out or being forced yeah, yeah. out because of medical stuff. But going from uniform to uniform, it's just a different uniform, right? But you mm -hmm. still have that bond, that brotherhood. So for me, it wasn't, wasn't that hard of a transition in that point. How old were you when you, when you enlisted? 28. So I was an old, I was an old, old. I was going to say, you were the old guy. Yeah. Were you able to keep up with the 18 year olds that were? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. Excuse my language, but no. 18, 19 year olds, man, they're a different breed. I was old and busted at that point. I'd already had a knee replacement, ACL, oh. MCL, meniscus that already been blown out in a fight on duty. And mm -hmm. um, the, the, the beautiful part of it was the drill sergeants who I was older than several of them. 
the drill sergeants recognize like, hey, this is an old dude. He already has a mindset for it. If we keep him in check just a little bit, he'll keep everybody else in check. So I kind of was that guy that was like the mentor to the group. Hey, guys, stop putting Skittles in your pocket. We shouldn't have that in the in the barracks. Like, stop it. Y'all are going to get a smoke. We would get smoked. I would say, I told you so. And then I would like mm-hmm. shake people down for their Skittles at the end of the night so we could avoid getting woken up. I was that guy, right? I was essentially got a barrack snitch, if you will. There's a hashtag in there getting shook down for Skittles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I might have eaten them real quick, but the, the drill sergeants <laughs> didn't know that piece. You know? yeah, that's true. That's right. <laughs> so, so why Army? Why, why, not, why not Marines? Man, I don't eat crayons. Um, <laughs> that's like a big Sick piece burn. of it. <laughs> no, man, I, I had I had a vision for what my military career looked like. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be infantry. Marines have infantry, but it was one of those. I, I knew I didn't want to go full time. I wanted to be a National Guard guy. I wanted to dual dual purpose what I was working on because I had other visions. But realistically, I looked at what's going to get you know, I wanted infantry, I wanted airborne, I wanted ranger, and I wanted a combat deployment. And I wanted a combat deployment as a leader, a platoon leader. I feel like the best way to test your leadership is under fire, literally. And if you can say two words under fire and people react, that is leadership. That is influence, right? Right. Um, There's a lot more to unpack because careful what you ask for, um, because that's exactly what I got and careful what you ask for. But um, to answer your question overall, like I saw that being the route where I would National Guard deploys more often than active duty units do. So I was able to catch a deployment a lot quicker. Um, my career path was a lot quicker in that progression stage while still being able to have like a semblance of a personal civilian life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, boy, there's a lot to unpack here. Okay, so um, leadership then, uh, going back to that term, is is the reason you decided National Guard. Um and that it's, it's interesting to me that you had boxes to tick in this sort of military career path that you had envisioned for yourself. My, my thinking is a lot of people just enlist thinking like I want to serve or I want to, you know, X, Y, Z, but you know, that, that those, those particulars, especially Ranger, which is not a very easy route to go. Um, whenever you enlisted and, and talked through this uh, with, with your recruit, was it a re- recruiter I'm guessing that you worked with? Yeah. And I, I came in as an E4. So like I had it okay. all in my contract, like, Hey, this oh. is the step. So I was, I was old enough and smart enough to realize if it's not on, on paper, like it, that's not going to happen. Cause those recruiters mm-hmm. are, you know, I'm sure, you know, by now. So I had the, all that in my contract, like it was going to go from basic training to officer school to infantry school to ranger school, had all that kind of laid out. Mm-hmm. What were you into uh, while you were in training and, and a part of the National Guard? You had all these sort of side um, civilian sort of jobs that you were working on. So the big one was the during OCS is when I started that first business, but it was more of like the structuring and framing out like this is what I wanted to be. Um, the first and, business being the security firm. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, and then when I left that train, I was gone about 15 months overall. And when I came back from that training, I went straight into running that full time. So I became just straight up. All right, we're going to figure out how business works. And mm-hmm. it was it was, talk about a journey, man, like taking lessons from the battlefield, if you will, to the boardroom has been one of my big like themes across a lot of things is military law enforcement teach you so many amazing things about discipline, structure, motivation getting up every morning at 4am still because you want to set your day off right mm-hmm. teaches you so many amazing things towards entrepreneurship and business ownership that when i stepped into that i didn't have to worry about okay i'm going to be lazy today it's all right what's the next task what's the mission we're going to accomplish and you can set that vision forward mm-hmm. so that training really kind of set that that foundational piece so like all right cool now i can go be successful in the, everything else i'm doing because i know how to accomplish a mission if that makes sense Totally. And when, and what year did you finish? Uh, I'd say if Ranger was the, the last schooling that you did. Or so I never, training? I never made it Ranger school. I made it to Afghanistan <laughs> instead. Um, okay. I so walk me through that a bit. If you weren't going for Ranger, so that was on the box. So why didn't you choose to go that way? Or was it just not up, up to you? It was not up to me. Okay. Um, I got out of training in January, went back to running the business. I was supposed to go to Ranger school in April. Mm-hmm. Um, so of I what started- year? of uh lord have mercy uh 2018 must be all those skittles but My, all the dang skittles man and the, <laughs> and the old age and the concussions <laughs> like i can't keep everything straight anymore um but yeah that was that was 2018 mm-hmm. and got out in january was supposed to go to ranger in april and then um i had a rotation at jrtc pop up in may 
So they're like, well, you can either go to JRTC and go on the deployment, or you can go to JRTC and go on the deployment. You don't get to go to Ranger School. So obviously, I didn't have that choice. I went to JRTC um, down at Fort Polk and then deployed in August of that year. So I was only home for about six months running that business before I ended up in Afghanistan. Now, lead me through that. It's your first deployment. Um, was that your first time overseas in any case? Uh, in, in the military, it was. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what was it like going to Afghanistan? You know, it's funny. You get so well trained and being a little bit older as, as a second lieutenant going, you know, most of my peers were 22. So they didn't have life experience. They had college experience. I, I had a very different mindset at that point. And it, by that time, I was 30, 31. So I already had, you know, a little bit different head on my shoulders and doing things. So um, going over there, I recognized we're trained to go there. You're trained to get your head right, close up any loose ends before you go, get your shit straight, if you will. Yeah. And be ready to go because that's going to be your focus. That's the only thing you're going to do. Don't worry about anything else. Mm -hmm. I also had the realization, nobody's talking about coming home. Nobody's talking about what happens after the deployment. So it almost like culturally shifted into just plan on going, don't plan on coming home. And while that's never said, it's like one of those, get your things in order because you might not come home. And we ended up losing um, six guys among the 50 I was with plus my sister platoon. So out of about 90 guys, we ended up losing six of us. Mm. Um, so the realization is like we ran offensive operations. We ended up getting tagged on with a special forces unit, um, an ODA, and we ran operations every four days and we ran offensive operations, movement to contact every four days for nine months. And you say movement to contact, that means like heading outside of the wire to contact. Uh, yeah. Go, go sack a village, go take over a village back from the Taliban, whatever it may be. I mean, there were almost every operation, there's an exchange of gunfire where people don't recognize. I mean, this was 2019, um, 2019. People don't recognize like stuff was still going on in Afghanistan pretty recently. And, um, there's still a, an active war that was being fought over there. And um, all I had to say, like, they never taught us, like, what do you do when you come back? And the time I left Afghanistan to the time I was back on my sofa was five days. There was no decompression period. There was no, like, train down, just like there's a train up to go to Afghanistan because we, mm -hmm. we were th uh, third ID down at Fort Stewart near Savannah. Um, so we went and trained with active duty for several months before we actually went to Afghanistan. It's like nobody talked about, all right, here's what you do when you come back as a national guard guy, you, your orders get cut. You just go, you don't go back into active duty life. So nobody talked about like, this is what you do. This is how you decompress. This is how you uncompartmentalize everything you had to compartmentalize over there. And like, to me, that was the worst part. By the time I got back in country, all my soldiers were gone. I was the last guy back. So like my soldiers were gone. I didn't see my soldiers for two or three months in like an organized fashion mm -hmm. beyond me reaching out and meeting up with them on my own. Like, the military, the National Guard side just did nothing to support that transition home. And that's where a lot of these statistics come from. Like nobody thinks about like coming home is the issue. Going over there is not. You're ready for that. Yeah. Coming home is where the struggle really starts. Yeah. Where were you deployed to in Afghanistan? I was up in the north area, Kunduz. Um, so it was like up in the northern sector. When I landed in Afghanistan, there were like eight inches of snow. When I left, it was 140 degrees. Is the most radical change. Yeah, um, it's just insane. But that, you, that northern area. What'd you think of the countryside? Honestly, you know, I, I went trying to think of like, all right, let's find one thing that I like about this place because honestly, it's a it's a not a nice place. Mm -hmm. um, it was beautiful. The country itself is gorgeous mountains and snow and you know you have these these pastures desert i mean every time i got on a helicopter and flew it's like just beautiful terrain yeah everything else about the country kind of sucks <laughs> um talk a bit about the difference between being a swat officer the types of um, shakedowns you were doing there uh and hang on the... now we don't we don't shake down for anything but skittles come on now <laughs> hang on <laughs> I'm trying to use the terminology here. I'm talking to it sounds a so terrible though. Only for Skittles, damn it. <laughs> the SWAT, the SWAT, what'd you call them? The they were going on a mission. 
you call uh, it operations. I mean, operation, operations, okay, operation. You'd go with SWAT and like the uh, what you do um, in Afghanistan. Uh, how did that prepare you for those those sort of kinetic um, experiences? I mean, it was very similar, honestly. Obviously, much larger scale, much larger movements going to villages in Afghanistan, but. At the end of the day, it turns into close quarter stuff where you're, you're going through a village and trying to eradicate Taliban. Like you're trying to get the village back for Afghans. Um, what's really funny is the, the first operation um, that we were on that we started receiving gunfires. Like it might have been like two or three weeks in, in country. We started receiving gunfire. I hear the zip go over your head and it's like, I'm like, I know what that is. I've been shot at before in law enforcement. I'd already been shot at. So I know what that sound is. My guys were looking around, you know, you see bullets start hitting the ground around you and you don't, they're like, what the heck is happening? As I'm <laughs> diving behind a truck, I'm like, hey, dumb butts, get behind the truck. And that was our first engagement. So for me, it, re- it prepped me because I was in the mindset of that, where yeah. if you're not already in that mindset, like the first time you just honestly, you don't know how to register at all because it's not something you're familiar with. So I think it really prepped me well for that um but even law enforcement they don't teach you how to decompress from all of that they just teach you how to pack it all away so you don't deal with it and you know after dang near 15 years of experience nobody wants to talk about that piece and i think again that's like the biggest disservice that's happening you went into the military saying i want to be a leader in a combat situation but it sounds like you had already done it I think in, in the law enforcement world, I was definitely more of one of the followers. I didn't, I never really rose to a level of, I think everybody is a leader in their own right. I think a janitor, an organization is a leader, no different than a private can be in a platoon. You know, you, yeah. you have those, those places where it's more about your actions and how you conduct yourself. Um, so to an extent I was, but never in the formalized, I'm calling the shots. I'm, I'm the end state of this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it definitely was a test on a much larger scale once we were in Afghanistan. Can you talk a bit about, uh, the medical discharge that you're going through with the nerve damage? Yeah, man. At some point over there, um, I bonged my elbow. I guess that's the best way to put it. I don't know what the heck happened. Um, but there was some sort of trauma to my elbow, um, that ended up compressing the ulnar nerve and the ulnar nerve is your funny bone. So anytime you hit your funny bone, it's like, Oh man, that feels really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, the bones in my elbow ended up getting to a point where they're compressing that nerve near severing. Um, and what ends up happening that controls your ring finger and your middle finger, I, I'm sorry, your ring finger and your pinky finger. So that part of my hand is still numb. I don't have any feeling. I mean, we're talking over two years later, um, what, it, what was sad is I didn't recognize, I didn't feel any of that. I ended up having muscle atrophy in my hand. Um, usually that's the last thing that happens. Usually you have the numbness, you have the tingling sensation. I was different in the way that I had the muscle atrophy first. So I never recognized that this injury was happening. I never thought anything different. And then while I was going through, I was getting promoted to captain. I was going through captain's career course at the beginning of this year in January, went down to do a push-up hit my thumb weird, popped it out of place, thought, oh, that sucks, that hurts, popped it back into place, just kind of massaged it, it went right back into place, and then my entire hand went numb. Mm. Like, well, that's weird, but whatever, I'm infantry, we just kind of keep, you know, grinding forward. Um, a week later, it was all still numb, and then I started getting all the testing done, and, and long story short, they determined that sometime about two years prior, due to the muscle atrophy and how far the muscle in my hand had been deteriorated, um, sometime in Afghanistan, I got some sort of trauma to my elbow um, that would have compressed that nerve. And I had to have surgery on that nerve. It moved it out of where it is in your elbow into pretty much my bicep and my forearm. Um, so it's in a super sensitive spot now. I uh, still don't have any feeling in my hand. I'm getting better about picking up stuff. I can tie my shoes again, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't recognize how much that, because that controls your grip as well. So you yeah. can't really pick up stuff very well. Um, right. But, you know, part of that rehabilitation, I ended up picking up piano to like force myself into, um, there's a long story there about why that was a part of my passion to like get into uh, recovery from mindset to like keeping yourself going. But right. um, overall, still working through it, physical therapy a couple of times a week and still trying to get that strength back in it. You don't strike me as somebody that sort of struggles with finding motivation for things. Um, no matter what surprised. they say, <laughs> you'd be really surprised, man. I'd love to say that that's, that's me. That's who I am. But 
to be uh, something that I learned in Afghanistan is like, I think the best leaders have vulnerability attached to what they're doing. And you have to be vulnerable to really show, you know, that emotion yourself so that everybody else is able to process that. And when we mm -hmm. lost guys in Afghanistan, I had to exemplify that. Now today, like looking at um, that motivation piece, no, man, like staying motivated is one of the hardest things that I do where, I mean, I'm in therapy, like the mental side of therapy, physical therapy. I go to therapy, physical therapy twice a week. And man, when that happens, like my arm hurts, I get really bitter about stuff. I get really angry about stuff. It makes me want to say F all this. And mm -hmm. for a long time, I was in a hole, man, for lo losing the uniform, having the uniform taken from you. You know, there a lot of people out there can recognize like that is not an easy transition. When it's on your own terms, it's not easy. When it's on right. somebody else's terms, you know, it really, it really turns into those, man. It is really hard to stay motivated some days because you get into that victim mindset. Like, why did this happen to me? And I've beaten myself up. That's part of why I, I picked up piano is like, I started beating myself up. Like I'll never be able to ride my motorcycle again. I'll, I'll be kicked out of the military. I can't do a pull up. I can't do a push up anymore. Mm -hmm. And my, my grandmother gave me, I have an heirloom stand up piano that my grandmother gave me. I used to do woodworking way back in the day. And I always wanted to restore this piano. And I literally started beating myself up. I'll never learn to play piano. All these years, I set it as a New Year's resolution. And I said, no, nah, it's not important. I'll do it one day. I literally started beating myself up. Well, good job, man. Like, F that. You're never going to be able to do that. Congrats. You, you screwed off in life too much. And what I recognized is that inner voice, that, that person saying, you'll never be able to do that. The only person saying that was the guy looking at me in the mirror. Mm -hmm. The guy that was looking back at me was like, you're not going to be able to do that. And I, I had to have that mindset shift. Like, why? Why can't I go do that? So literally that same weekend that I was in my darkest, deepest holes, it hit me upside the head like, nah, man, you can do this. I went and bought a piano. Within two weeks, I started playing a piece of Bach because classical music has always relaxed me. If my anxiety yeah. goes up, when I meditate, I throw in headphones, I throw on classical. And I had the thought, what if I can create classical music instead of just listen to it? What type of impact would that make for me? And it's like, a, oh, it's piano, right? It's kind of a softer thing. But like mm -hmm. looking back toward like my soldiers, if I can't master myself, how can I expect my 19, 20 year olds that I deployed with? my soldiers that are struggling even more than me because they don't have the life experience to have any type of activity. They don't have the life experience to turn back and ask for help. If I can't do it, they definitely won't be able to, right? Mm -hmm. So I need to be a leader. That's where the piece of like the true leadership test came from. It wasn't in Afghanistan. I was trained for that. What I wasn't trained for is how do I lead these guys afterwards? How do we stay masters of ourselves where you don't have the 22 a day, you don't have that stuff shift and go in that hole and stay in that hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go in the hole, feel the feelings, remember what got you to where you are, but then take that step, dig yourself out of there, climb out of that hole, find that thing that motivates you. The piano is part of my morning routine now. It hurts, my hand cramps up, I get frustrated, I get mad, and at the end of the day, I sit there and I'm like, I'm learning to play classical music on a piano. If that doesn't keep me motivated, like I had to find something, right? Because there were days where I just wasn't. I mean, depression is a real thing. PTSD and my biggest PTSD factor is avoidance. I didn't want to meet the things I was failing at. I kept failing at things because I couldn't physically anymore. So I just started avoiding things. And a lot of us suffer from that avoidance aspect from mm -hmm. relationships to mindset to physical limitations. And until you can face that head on, recognize, all right, this is broken. My arm is broken right now but I can fix that. You can fix things that are broken. And I had to recognize my mind was broken for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I had to find what's going to fix that. And the piano ended up being for me, that emotional piece is like, all right, I can do anything if I can play the dang piano with a busted up hand. And my left hand is way better at it than my right hand. And it makes no sense because that's the injured one. Right. Right. It's crazy. That's a long winded thing, but like, oh, to that's me, like that's the passion piece about what's keeping totally. me motivated. That's what I like to dig down into. That's the, that's the, that's the stuff right there. Um, incredible. And so that being sort of the emotional piece, you have sort of what seems to be the, uh, the cerebral piece with be a tactical leader. Um, 
and 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 the multiple different businesses that you're involved in. So, uh, you know, let's let's talk about be a tactical leader that podcast, uh, what it means to you, how you're using that for good. You're over 200 episodes. I've listened to a couple; they're fantastic. I, I highly encourage our audience to to check them out. You can get them wherever you get your podcasts, um, and then we'll dive a bit into the businesses as well. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. That that show has been another piece. It's funny. I started it as marketing piece for the business. I literally used it to drive revenue and drive business into the security firm. Um, at that point, it was called tactical leadership. And it was all about like talking about tactics from leaders across different industries. Fascinated by leadership. I'm fascinated by the culture. Every interviewee I have on the show, I have this big picture question. What's the legacy you want to leave on the world? Because I'm fascinated by leadership. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by legacy. I'm actually writing a book that's kind of surmising all of these lessons called The Legacy of Leadership. I'm hoping it'll be out next year. Uh, still got to work towards that. But um, honestly, <laughs> those, podcast, those are long. Those are long games. You've got to kind of really. That's, that's they're such almost, a long they're harder game. than picking up the piano is writing a book. It really is. It really is. Mm -hmm. And I already have half the content made for me from the podcast, right? But, there you go. Um, you know, it started as that and then it shifted after Afghanistan. It shifted. Um, into honestly a form of therapy i started bringing on mindset experts i started bringing on all these people a lot of veterans that have gone through these things and i started asking them questions like how'd you get through that how'd you shift your mind how'd you do this that and the other while fighting this internal battle while fighting limiting beliefs so the podcast really turned into where I've now rebranded it. I've rebranded myself and the show as the tactical leader. Um, that is a very recent shift in the be a tactical leader piece is the how to. So I talk to the tactical leaders. I, I give my insights about what tactics in leadership looks like. I, I don't talk about the military teaches the science. Here's the box that you have to be in. This is what a leader looks like but they never teach you how to get in that box, how to actually apply those things. So my, my podcast really focuses on the art form of leadership. How do you become a great leader? And that's where how to be a, um, or be a tactical leader, excuse me, be a tactical leader.com is the website. That's my coaching brand. That's where the podcast is hosted. That's really the how to piece to apply these leadership tactics that we've really focused on, on the podcast. I'm pulling up for our YouTube viewers, uh, a look at your, at your website. Yeah, that's, that is it right there. We have an awesome battle space community. Uh, BATL is, you know, the military is all about acronyms. So BATL yep, totally. is a, be a tactical leader. Um, so I have the battle space community where I really try to bring in individuals that want to learn more about mastering themselves. And, you know, it's not that I'm just talking about it because I'm some wonderful guru life coach person. Mm -hmm. It's because I'm living it right now. And I'm speaking my experiences on my podcast. And I'm finding others that want to share their experiences of self mastery on the podcast. And, you know, to this day, it's still a therapy session. Every hour I record, it's like, gets me hyped because you recognize you're not the only one. There are a community, even without the uniform, there are still communities out there of like-minded, similar individuals that are all going through the same thing. And the best way to get through it is with a battle buddy, with somebody that's your wingman, wingwoman that can help you stay accountable, help you stay driving forward. And if nothing else is that person that you can call when you're really deep and dark in that hole. Who are these two Zachs? We got the kind of army <laughs> tattooed guy and we got the, you know, trimmed up, you know, nazi guy. You know, um, <laughs> pre-COVID, I was in a suit every day. Post-COVID, it's a blending between the two, you know. Depending on business days, I got to walk in with a suit looking sharp, depending on what I'm doing. But honestly, the, the black tee is what you'll see me in more than anything, man. Like, it's really a step into authenticity where... You know, you can be multifaceted just because I don't have a formalized uniform anymore, man. My uniform is that suit or my uniform is a black tee. Like you shift the mindset of I don't need somebody else's uniform. Now I'm just myself. I am that branded tactical leader. Um, so it, that that website, I actually designed it myself. I built it out myself. I have the company that could help me with it. But that all is that true, like authenticity. That's what correlates with me now is like. Um, the, the graphics for my social media have an American flag and a, a tear going through the middle of it where it highlights the episode. And that tear is literally part of like, it is being torn from me. And it's very, very uh, exemplary of our exemplifying like, this is what's literally happening right here in this stage of my life. And that's what that branding really is about. I'm big on like, being authentic, like, 
shit is not great sometimes. And so many yeah. people want to live that IG world. Oh, it's amazing. Look at this awesome Bugatti I'm sitting on and claiming is my own, but it's some other dudes, you know, that the social media world has gotten so fake. And honestly, a lot of it, there are a lot of uh, small idioms, if you will, that really kind of show through like what I'm going through at this stage in my life. And that podcast is that outlet, man. It is a truly incredible resource. That's fantastic. And talk a bit about the other businesses you have, you, all these ventures. You know, this is something that I've seen uh, echoed throughout the veteran community is getting out, transitioning to civilian life. And then a lot of them go into entrepreneurship and build businesses and, and help people build businesses. So what do you got going on in that space? Yeah. So I mentioned the security firm. That was the, the first baby. Um, I mentioned the domestic violence awareness nonprofit. That originally was going to be a piece of the security firm where we just wanted to teach domestic violence awareness and women's self-defense. But I saw the value attached to having a full nonprofit because in that space, you don't see women's self-defense being taught. It's all reactionary. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I love that, that it's nipping that problem in the bud right, right at the beginning. Like, you yeah, know. one in three women will be assaulted in their lifetime, most of them before they leave college. So a lot of, we teach a lot of co-eds, we teach a lot of younger women, but I mean, we, we partner with corporations across Atlanta that want to bring that into their organization and teach their employees because, you know, you have the, the estranged ex-husband or the boyfriend that's mad that comes on site. I mean, there are places here having that happen and, and you're not prepped for it. So it's a great way to teach that, that female employee base to like, this is how you protect yourself because we care about you. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, the third organization I have is a real estate holdings firm where we buy uh, multifamily properties and we house women going through our, our program. Um, I facilitate that with the security firm. So it all ends up being a giant enterprise where the security firm does all the security and an off-duty police officer living there. And these women are in a safe environment as they transition because we actually have a three to five year program as they transition to build step-by-step rebuild their life, rebuild their confidence, rebuild really their, their self-confidence to like be able to thrive in life. And the, the nonprofit's called Surviving to Thriving. So we take women that are barely surviving all the way to thriving in life and try to create that ecosystem for them. Um, then after that, you're going to laugh at this one. Um, I have an international dance competition that I own with a business partner. Um, we're in 151 countries. We grew it to that in the first eight months. I run operations. I don't dance. I do two that step. That's going to be my two. first question. I, it always is. I don't dance. Um, I two step, I dad dance, and I finger wag. Those episodes haven't aired yet, but one day I'm determined. Um, I want a YouTube highlight film, a TikTok. <laughs> I, I want all the, yeah. Yeah, man. But the, the Worldwide Dance Challenge has been an amazing adventure. Um, we have a talent development firm over the top of that. We're week three. We had a young kid from South Africa come on the show. By week six, we were able to get him signed to Universal. And then he opened two of his own dance studios in South Africa with that revenue. So that impact is huge. Um, we have, that's where the production company came from. We actually started the production company to backfill um, the podcasting and that show where we multi-purpose content. So we'll take like the Zoom videos and we'll chop it up for social media content. We really specialize in audio and video editing. But now we're doing websites and all the other you know stuff that happens with media and uh, digital media, media PR, uh, media relations type stuff. And um, that kind of is the full thing. But like what I love about how we've structured this is the nonprofit is the purpose partner with the dance competition. And everything kind of facilitates that nonprofit where we're getting domestic violence awareness across 151 countries across the world. We're making an impact where like that type of literature isn't available. So every episode you hear about domestic violence awareness, you have these resources provided for. So when we talked earlier about like what keeps you motivated, what keeps you going? My why is helping those that can't help themselves. They want help. They want to seek those things. Just like somebody getting beat up by a bully that I hate. Again, domestic violence, bullies. I absolutely hate that piece. I've, I've created an enterprise where we support those that can't help themselves, but they're seeking that help. And we mm -hmm. try to facilitate that as best as we can. Um, beyond helping them, you're helping veterans too. So you're, you're giving back to your, your, your military veteran community. Are you hiring veterans into the security firm? You're hiring them into the nonprofit. How do you sort of help to give back to them? Yeah, the veterans, um, that's all I employ with the security firm. You have to be a veteran or a active police officer. Most of them are the same. I like the same background as my own. Giving back there, um, I'm the, on the board. The way we met, I'm on the board of Vetlanta here in Atlanta. We have a huge organization here. And then I'm also 
uh, in a leadership position with Bunker Labs. Um, we have several cohorts across the country where I help with business coaching and different resources that I bring into the veteran community. So um, like I'm the marketing chair for Vetlana, but I, I'm creating a community online for Vetlana where all these resources get housed. This is where you can go. Like for me, transitioning from Afghanistan to my sofa in five days, I didn't know where the heck to go to find any type of help, any type of resource, anything. So I've literally created that veteran venture essentially where the production company is doing pro bono work for Vetlana to make sure this is where the resources are found. And I'm taking my own personal knowledge back into Vetlana, back into Bunker Labs and just helping those Bunker Labs is focused on veteran entrepreneurs that want to launch businesses. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's the perfect place for me to be and help share the knowledge that I've been able to gain over the last couple of years. Incredible. Um, I'm going to finish with the same question that you ask your guests, the legacy you want to leave. Man, you can't turn that back around, man, back around on me. Um, it's too good. It's too good not to. You know, and, and there's a book called Start With Why. I mentioned my why, Simon, uh, Simon Sinek. It was a great book. But I feel like we have to shift to ending with why. Starting with why is great. but You have to look at the end state. You have to look at what's going to happen long term. For me, I want not my name to be remembered. I want the legacy that I'm leaving that I actually did help those that couldn't help themselves. You know, it's, I have organizations that I want to continue long past the time I'm gone that are bringing domestic violence awareness, that are bringing the solutions of how to stay safe. We're doing those things to help those people that are seeking and trying to find that help, but truly can't. And they don't know the resource. They don't have the resource. I want to be that resource. The legacy I want to leave is he helped people that couldn't help themselves. He helped defeat the bullies of the world. And that's what I want to be on my tombstone when I'm gone. He helped those defeat those bullies. That's awesome. And I'm going to change my last name tonight just so I can get a little bit of that, that gumption. Um, it helps, man. It helps. That's why I have, <laughs> I have an armor tattooed on me. Like, you know, I really take that, that whole knighthood thing to, to probably an extreme degree. Nobility and, you know, yeah. yeah taking down the bully. I love it. Um, <laughs> Zach, this has been uh, incredibly inspirational and, and really thoughtful. I really appreciate your time. Uh, um, yeah, it's been incredible. Thank you. Man, I, I appreciate you having me on here, my friend. Yeah, definitely. Any, any final words for, for our audience? Just get it done. Keep your head down. Keep grinding. People say don't do it, but keep doing it because you're always going to find a solution. And I, uh, hopefully our audience will, uh, in the chat, will have all of the links to Zach's uh, multiple ventures out there. Uh, we'll be looking forward to the highlight reel of Zach's uh, dance skills um, in, the, in the future, but make sure you like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell, not only for the scuttlebutt, for, but for Be a Tactical Leader. Um, uh, hopefully uh, soon I'll be able to, to jump on your podcast and, and do a bit of chatting there as well. Absolutely. Um, looking forward to it. Uh, thank you, Zach, again, and uh, we will see you all on the next uh, episode of The Scuttlebutt. I want to thank Millerstown Pick Apart for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. For Millerstown's hours, direction, inventory, and pricing, go to pickapartyard.com. That's P-I-C-A-P-A-R-T-Y-A-R-D.com. Thank you so much, Millerstown, and uh, we'll see you on the next Scuttlebutt.